everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. This podcast is for all you dreamers out there. Everyone has a dream. Mine was music. It took me a long time, but finally, when I was in my 60s, I followed my dream to success. I want to help you pursue and succeed at your dream. I'm going to feature others on this podcast who successfully follow their dream, like today's guest. I've told you that each episode of the podcast is going to start with a different song of mine that's played underneath the introduction. In the intro to this episode, you heard a bit of my reimagined cover of an early Beatles song, I Want to Be Your Man, which I renamed I Want to Be Your Girl. The original was sung by Ringo and was featured in the soundtrack of their movie, A Hard Day's Night. I'll tell you more about it, and you'll hear the entire song at the end of this episode. I chose this song because my guest today had a personal connection to the Beatles. He was the leading radio personality in New York City on WABC. They called it WA Beatles C at the time during the 1960s. And he actually introduced the Beatles when they played at Shea Stadium in 1965. Imagine that. My guest is Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey, America's number one and most famous radio air personality. He ruled the airwaves in New York City in the 1960s on WABC AM. He then conquered FM radio at WCBS FM. And if that wasn't enough, he later became an innovator and fixture on satellite radio for over a decade on Sirius XM. And then about a year ago, he came full circle when he returned to WABC AM, where he continues to host a weekly show. His voice can be heard in a number of movies. He was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame and the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. On a personal note, I've known Bruce for many years. We first met when I co-owned a record label called 32 Records. We had just bought the music rights to Tom Jones's 1960s TV show, and we wanted to promote it. So we staged a Tom Jones impersonator contest, and I hired Bruce to emcee it. And you know what? We actually did find a guy who looked and sounded so much like Tom Jones that he might have been Tom Jones. Bruce, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Well, first of all, that was quite one hell of an introduction. My gosh, I have nothing to say anymore. (laughs) You've done it all. Good night, folks. Nice seeing you. Robert, a pleasure pleasure to be with you. Uh, You know, it's funny, as you were talking about the Tom Jones things, I really almost forgot that. And you're right. I think it was Tom Jones. (laughs) I think he he fooled everybody. Uh, He was quite quite a guy. Did you ever see him perform at the Cobra? Talking about the actual Tom Jones. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Tom Jones. 
No, well, se- seen something. him on television, but never live. Oh, boy. I've seen this man live. He was great on television. His recordings are great. I was even on a boat with him on a luxury cruise doing something. But when you saw him in person at the Copa, which is that magic place, you know, in New York City at that time, the 50s, et cetera, it was magic. It was energy. It was spirit. And it was like a tsunami of panties and bras. <laughs> what they would do, very honestly, all the women, they would come down and uh, they, they'd bring them with them, I hope, or they'd remove them and they'd throw them at Tom when he was appearing on the stage. It was weird. But those were kind of interesting days. They were interesting I never forgot days. those days. Good. Thank you for reminding me about that. Tell me about this. You were at the center of Beatlemania, of the whole British invasion. What was it like? Well, that's probably among the most important parts of my career. And uh, I was just very honestly lucky I was at the right place at the right time, as they say. We were on the air and the the American music industry was getting a little tired. You know, the same thing, same thing every single week. New records would come out. We'd have, you know, things by the Beach Boys and... uh, Chuck Berry would come out. We'd have some Elvis. We'd have a few new groups come out. And we'd be playing a lot of the stuff from the 50s and early 60s. But we needed something new. The industry was getting tired. Suddenly, over in the continent, over in Europe, something was happening. We didn't quite understand it. A group of mop tops, these guys with those strange hairdos, were driving people crazy and causing all kinds of uh, performance riots all over uh, Europe. And we watched it and we listened a little bit and we didn't really think much of it. I mean, what what could be coming out of Europe? America owned rock and roll. Suddenly, we started receiving records by a group called the Silver Beatles and it became the Beatles. And I started getting music about 1962. We started bringing it into the uh, record meetings we had at WA before we called it WA Beatles. And nobody really was that impressed from it. You know, they were imitating. It sounded like they were imitating the American music idiom of rock and roll. We started listening more and more records came in or some of the early stuff came in and uh, we started playing it and the audience reacted. See, the audience, very honestly, we we didn't realize as uh, as it was that they were getting very hungry for something new. They needed something novel. Also, if you look at what was going on about 62, 63, we were kind of in a, a rough state. We had assassinations. Racial issues were <laughs> horrible as they are now, unfortunately, but worse then. Uh, we had economic problems, political problems. So the audience, people needed something to smile about. We had to smile again. We were uh, losing the muscles that make us smile, as we are today, a lot of us. So we started playing this, this music, this early Beatle music. And suddenly, Requests started coming in. People started speaking with British accents. I'm going to give you a funny story. When the Beatles first came in to JFK Airport on Pan American Flight 101, if you remember, I was there covering it for WABC. We were down there with our microphones, and we had what we call Marty units because there was no really remote wireless digital stuff in those days. So we were there live as live as we can be. And these guys come in, four of them, and there's a press conference. Well, it was the very first time I met them, playing their records and everything. I, I knew that music and I, I loved it. Uh, I realized that there was something very different there. And the press conference was kind of wild. The 
press corps was after them. Because, you know, let's face it, journalism and the uh, newspapers represented mom and dad. Nobody wanted to represent the kids. It was not a market. You couldn't make any money on the kids. You wanted to sell cars. You wanted them to go to Bloomingdale's and you wanted them to uh, to buy makeup and stuff like that. Nobody cared about pimple creams, you know, in those days. So the the um, the journalists went after them and they said, hey, when did you last get a haircut? i never forget that one. And he says, what do you mean when did I just got one this morning? You know, they were talking, they were going after him. When you sing a song, absolutely not. Then one of them said, you have any money? You know, so it was kind of a give and take type thing like that. But they won. And uh, they left the the uh, press conference as heroes. By the time they got into New York City, by the way, everybody was Beatle crazy. We were all speaking with British accents. Here's a cute story. Joey from the Bronx would call me. You know, always take, I take dedications, as you know. People call me, and I like to talk about them. Uh, I talk to them about their lifestyle and any kind of problems they're having. It goes past music, thanks to the Beatles. And I say that, and I'll reiterate that later. Thanks to the Beatles, it went past the music. So Joey, we get on the phone with me. Here's what happened. Two weeks before the Beatles arrived, they'd say to me, Robert, they'd say, hey, Cousin Brucey, hey, this is uh, your main man, Cousin Robert, uh, the, the grand concourse in the Bronx. Would you play a record for me and my girl, Maisie? I love Maisie. Play something by Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee, will you? Hey, man, you're, you're okay. You're the Genshius, baby. All right. <laughs> Two weeks pass. Two weeks pass. The Beatles arrive. Hello? Is this Sir Cousin Brucey, His Majesty? This is Sir Robert of the Grand Conjure and the Concourse in the Bronxshire. Notice everybody's <laughs> speaking with me. I wonder if you'd mind playing a record for me and my bird. 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 Right, girlfriend. That's me right. and my bird, uh, Lady Maisiet, right? I'd love you to play something by that fab for the Beatles. I want to hold your hand. Thank you, Sir Brucey. You are fabulous. You are fab. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Suddenly, all the calls were like that. Everybody was speaking the King's English. They started wearing their hair like that, like the Beatles, the mop tops. They started dressing with the Prince, I think, uh, Edward. Look, everything was becoming British, uh, British, British, British file, Anglophile. Anglophile is the word. And uh, the Brits came over. And then, of course, they were followed very quickly by Dave Clark Five, the Hollies, the Stones came over, the uh, uh, Yardbirds, and on and on and on. Suddenly, we were invaded. We started calling it the British invasion. That's how it happened. And that's how I got very involved. And then if you want, I can tell you the story about a Shea Stadium. That's how I really got involved. Well, you know, there's that very famous uh, appearance at Shea Stadium. It was the first major concert, certainly in a a stadium. I'm going to a few others, but this was the the major one. Yes. They never really were in a venue like we had. Look, as I said, they had tens of thousands of people invading with them in in, in, uh, Europe, but they never had anything like Shea Stadium. Picture this now, 65,000 plus young people in the stadium, in Shea Stadium, right? Mostly female, by the way. All there for one reason, to be with, share space with the Beatles. You couldn't hear the cacophony. The audio was so loud. I always say this kind of a tongue-in-cheek, that Con Edison, which cousins that are listening outside of New York, Con Edison is our public utility that gives us uh, uh, electricity and gas, uh, you get gas when you see the bill, you know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> So the, the sound was so loud that 
they could have turned their turbines off and the electricity would have come from Shea Stadium. I was in the uh, the dugout with all with Ed Sullivan and press corps and a lot of hangers on her. And uh, the Beatles were brought on, brought into us. And John and Paul came over to me because they knew me talking on the phone. They knew I was playing their records. They knew I was very pro. And uh, uh, McCartney says to me, Brucey, is this going to be all right? And then Lennon says, Cousin. He always called me Cousin. 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 Are we safe? Is this going to be all right? Because with all the, the hoopla that they created and the riots that they created in Europe, as I said, nothing was like this. The It was in the air. There was like a tidal wave coming. We all felt it. Uh, I said to them, I put my fingers up. I would cross my fingers, put them behind my back, which meant, you know, I'm going to lie. Right? I said, oh, it's fellas, it's perfectly safe. No, I knew no way. It was like, I mean, it, it was just too much. It was just ready to over overflow. And I said, fellas, it's perfectly safe. Just know something. This is love. This is how this American New York audience want to share with you. They want to be in the same space with you. It's safe. They accepted that. Well, the time came for uh, me to introduce the Beatles with uh, Ed Sullivan. Now, Ed Sullivan, you remember, the toast of the town, he was a really big, big shoe, really big, you know, uh, really didn't know the acts that well and never really understood the Beatles and the power of rock and roll. You know, he was a, he was a square, a square, nice man, but a square. We're walking up the steps to the little stage, which was at about the home base. And he turned around, he was two steps in front of me. He turns around, he says, Cousin Brucey, is this going to be okay? Because it was, you felt, as I said, the pressure, wow. the pressure, Robert, of the people just going at you. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? I'm going to get this guy because I know darn well he doesn't even know who the Beatles are. But he's here for publicity, et cetera. And I said, well, I don't think it's going to be safe. I think we got a problem. And his eyes bulged, you know. <laughs> and he turned around and continued walking another step. And he got to the next step. And he turns around again. He says, oh, Brucey, what do we do? And I knew I had him. And I said to him, I looked him right in the eyes. And I said, Ed, pray. And he looked at me and says, pray? Okay. <laughs> he was so scared. I was scared too, very. I was got my being a wise guy. We walked up to the steps. Now he was the postscript. That was the one of the most peaceful. It was loud concerts I've ever seen. I mean, anything could have happened. Nobody really got hurt. The kids were there to share space, as I said, with the Beatles. Now, unfortunately, nobody really heard it. Matter of fact, you know something, Robert? I'll tell you something. You're an audiophile, so you'll appreciate this. I never really heard that actual concert until about two years ago when somebody sent me a bootleg uh, <laughs> copy of it, which uh, I listened to at home. It was pretty good. They couldn't hear themselves on the stage. After a while, they just did, you know, lip sync, and they did, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was overwhelming. To this day, I can conjure up that feeling in my belly of the pressure of that audience because it was pressure, it was a tidal wave. And the, the concert went well. I uh, was asked by the NYPD and the security people over at Chase Stadium to please patrol with them to get the kids to calm down because they'd listen to me. And I was prying kids' hands off the chicken wire, and I was asking him to sit down, of course, which is ridiculous, but I calmed him down. Nobody really got hurt there, Robert. Everybody had a heck of a time, and to this day, to a person who ever attended that concert will never forget that feeling of the Beatles at Chase Stadium. I was going to say that if you didn't live through that era, you can't appreciate 
what Beatlemania meant to not only New York City and the United States, but to the world. I told my, my kids when they were growing up that they had to watch A Hard Day's Night because that movie was the best evidence that captured the feeling that took place then. You couldn't really experience it, but at least that was close so you could see. And I wanted to ask you, you're, you're on WABC. It's only AM radio that's broadcasting at that time. And I remember because I... Now it's a different story. Totally. Right, you're right. But I grew up in the New York City area listening to you. And I remember clearly there were three rock and roll radio stations on the air at that time. ABC with you, WINS with Murray the K as their lead personality, and WMCA with the good guys. And it was like heaven for kids like me growing up at that time, because you could go from one to the other. And it was just the same music. It was that great sound that was happening. What was it like for you at that time? It was, a, it was an amazing thing. And what we had to do was get exclusives, right? The uh, personality or the radio station that uh, had the exclusive music uh, would get the, because everybody would be turning, dial hopping and turning. So I was very lucky. Because of the power of WABC to become WA Beatles, see, the power, I was reaching 40 some odd states at night. It was amazing. And just on AM radio, right. this was not streaming like I'm doing all over the world today. Yes. Today, there's no such thing as local radio. But he was a local radio station that reached everywhere because of the ionosphere. And uh, I was given, because of that power of that radio station and because of our ratings, I was given exclusive rights for at least a half hour lead on any other radio station. I'll tell you a funny thing, Robert. I think you'll get a kick out of this. Every night I get a, uh, a call from uh, the record company, uh, Beatle Record Company, and say, we're going to bring you uh, an exclusive. We're going to give you 22 minutes ahead of every, everybody else anywhere in the nation, which is a lot, 22 okay. minutes. Well, at uh, about 10 minutes before I was allowed to put it on the air, it was like, it was like military, like the Defense Department, like the Congress told me when I'm allowed to play it. It was really very tough. A, I, an armed security guard with a promotion man would come up. The armed security guard would have a uh, an attache case attached to his uh, wrist by a handcuff. In that attache case was the, the, the Beatle record that nobody else had. And I the mean, nuclear codes, right? <laughs> and then I put it on the air. Now, what happened, because and we didn't think of this, because of the power of WABC to become WA Beatles, it reached 40 states. So anytime I play that record and other radio stations all over the country were aware that Cousin Bruce had an exclusive, they would record it while I'm playing it. So they'd have it at the same time I had it. I didn't have a day lead. So what happened? Within about an hour or so after I got off the air, the program director's on the air and he says to me, all right, this is what we're doing. These guys recorded the record. That won't ever happen again. So the next time I did this, a couple of days later, with the next exclusive, you'd hear this. A record was thought, the Beatles was thought, and you'd hear, exclusive, exclusive, Casimir's exclusive. we destroy the record. <laughs> Every 15, 20 seconds, you'd hear, exclusive, exclusive. So it, it wrecked the record, so nobody was able to copy it. That was the Beatle battle of broadcasters. It was amazing. This thing never stopped. It never stopped. And uh, as I said, the person with the Beatle records the newer ones would win the game. Amazing. Let me take you back a little bit. Was it always your dream, your passion to be in broadcasting? 
Honestly, no. In fact, I still want to be a doctor. You know, <laughs> I guess in a way, I I give a certain medicine to people. I give them happiness. I give them a time to relax. So I do dispense medical advice with, hey, calm down, listen to this music. No, I when I was a kid, I wanted to study medicine. And deep down, I still have that desire. Maybe if there's another uh, time I get to go around here, I'll probably do the same thing knowing me, right? Maybe the third time. But I, I really had a calling to be a country doctor. I wanted to do that very badly. I love people. See, I love to be with people. I love to help people. And that's why I say I think I fulfilled a part of that legacy. So what happened? How did you make the transfer? Well, while I was in uh, high school, by the way, this is my, I don't know. If, well, you know me, so this won't shock you, but it'll shock a lot of the listeners. Uh, I was a very shy kid. What? What? What is he saying? He was a shy kid. Yeah. I, there was a time I didn't even want to stand up in class. I, I, I maintained my B's, my B minuses, maybe a C once in a while, but I didn't want to stand up in class. One day, one of my English teachers, I think it was uh, at PS206, came over to me, Mrs. Uh, Freilisher, and said, I want you to try out for, they like my voice. I always had kind of a, I was born with this. This voice. He's got that radio right. voice, Bruce. Right? I think I was born. I came out of my mom, and uh, when I was introduced to the world, I was spanked. I said, Mama. <laughs> so she said, I want you to try out for our hygiene play. Hygiene play? I don't have to go on a stage in front of an audience, 300 people in an audience, all dressed up. Uh, we had hygiene plays in those days, Robert. We weren't allowed to have sex education because SEX was a dirty word. And the church and the political people would not allow that. So we were given hygiene classes, which was wonderful. It taught us how to wash under our arms and brush our teeth and clean behind our ears. We were really pre uh, prepared for life in those days. That's why my generation is so screwed up and is destroying this world. We had hygiene classes. <laughs> so, all right, I try out for the hygiene place. She convinced me and I get a part. Now, I want you to ask me what part did I get? What part did you get? I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> I became a cavity. <laughs> a tooth cavity? I was a tooth cavity. And I was dressed up, picture this, in this big, big tooth with a little slot so I could see on the outside. And that's the day I had my transformation from studying medicine to going on the stage and going on to radio and television. I thought you were going to tell me you wanted to be a dentist after that. Yeah, well, I was. And dirty dancing for a while. I'll tell you about that later. Kind of funny, the movie. Anyway, as I was on the stage, I felt the warmth of the audience coming towards me. And my warmth was returned. The audience was reacting to my lines. I sang, uh, Mommy tells me to brush my teeth. I don't want to brush my teeth. I eat chocolate bars. I eat, you know, uh, something silly like that. And uh, they laughed and they were applauding me. And I'm in this tooth, of course, so I'm safe, right? Complete big tooth. I got off the stage that day and I realized, gee, you know, I felt good. I felt safe. And for the first time in my life, I felt a reaction to people. I loved it. And it has not stopped since. I've been a cavity ever since. Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking with Cousin Brucey, Bruce Morrow. And I want to remind you all, you can get your complimentary dream roadmap to help you figure out how to pursue and succeed at your dream. Just go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap. 
So, Bruce. I'm going to follow that dream wherever that dream would take me. I'm going to follow that dream. Who's saying I, that? I got Elvis. a song now for the podcast. Elvis. Oh, are you kidding? I love the song. You know, one of the questions I did want to ask you, you had that fabulous introduction music by the Four Seasons. How did that come about? <laughs> I have no idea, but all that <laughs> I, I play, I love the Four Seasons. I've always loved the Four Seasons. So Bob Gordio and Frankie Rowdy called me one day and they said, hey, we want to come up to see you. We have a present for you. I didn't request this. I had no idea. Really? They came up. And they said, Brucey, here's a gift for you that you'll always have for the rest of your life. And they handed me a five-inch wheel. In those days, we used to have uh, tape recordings. You're probably too young, Robert. You don't remember tape. But uh, I, I had tape recorders. Don't worry. Yeah, so we had a little tape recorder. And it was a five-inch. And on that tape recording was the recording of uh, Cousin Brucey theme by the Four Seasons. Well, I put it on the air that night. right? And I put it on the air eight times after that. That uh, recording of uh, the Four Seasons doing the Cousin Brucey theme, right, has been with me ever since and will be with me everywhere I go. Anytime I'm, uh, I appear on a station as a guest, it's there, right? It's with me now in WABC. It's been with me for years. So that was a gift that Bob and Frankie gave me, and wow. what a gift that was. What Come a on. gift. That's your signature. I mean, you when you hear that music, even before they start to sing, you, just, you know it's the Cousin Brucey show. Right no matter where you have appeared. And tell me about that. You were the king of New York radio on, on AM, and then you made this unbelievable transition, first to FM, which was brand new at the time, pretty much, and then to satellite radio with Sirius XM. Tell me about those transitions. Well, you know, things, things change in the business, as you know, this business is not <laughs> very stable. Usually, uh, you know, once I mean, I had good stability at WABC the first time, 13 years. And I was with CBS FM for, I think, 20 years. I mean, long, it's been a long career. One day, uh, CBS FM decided they were going to change their format. I was on CBS FM for a long time. Big ratings. We made a lot of money with them, you know, and for them. And uh, one day, we're, uh, I'm with Mickey Dolan's at, uh, at a club on 42nd Street, and we're celebrating the morning show. We're on the air. Little do we know that back at the studio, because we're on remote, they were ripping computers out, taking all the signs off the walls, taking, getting rid of all the history of CBS FM. They decided they were changing formats. And uh, I got uh, home that day, and I see that there were news wagons, news uh, uh, cars and vehicles in front of my house down in the village. And I said, oh, my God, who died? Somebody died. You're right away. You think something negative. But it seems that in the interim, while I was uh, at the uh, the show, the remote show with Mickey Donalds, the news got out that they were changing and going to have a bloodbath at CBS FM. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I was the, the headline in big red bold print bloodbath at CBS FM. Well, they decided without even telling anybody. It wasn't nice. It was very unprofessional. To this day, I can never forgive them for that. It's It burns me, and I think it burns the audience, too. They changed. I got a call from the general manager that day. He says, look, we're changing format. You don't have to come in tonight. First time I heard about this. Just like that. Yeah, wow. it's 5 o'clock. I was supposed to be in by 6 or something like that. By the way, I'm very proud. I've never been late for a show or missed a show in my career. So... He said to me, however, we want to talk to you. We're going to be doing some other things that maybe on another channel you can. I said, let me think about this. Well, 
make a long story short. I mean, it was a terrible thing. Audience freaked out because he was the iconic radio station of New York, New York area, WCBS FM for many years. And without any apparent reason to the audience, he decided to pull the plug. Well, within four days, I had a new job. A new job. I went right away, right? Right away to my next uh, position at Sirius XM, which yeah. I stayed there for uh, 15 years. Sirius XM was kind of in its infancy at that time, wasn't yes, it? Yes, brand new, because it was still just Sirius. It had, and there was another competitive, competitor was uh, XM Radio out of Washington. Right. They eventually combined, forming Sirius XM. Now, I'm not going to badmouth this because uh, I had 15 very good years there, Robert. As you know, that's when you and I, I think, really started becoming friends. I had 15 very good years there. But one day I, I sort of woke up and I started getting a little restless. Now, let me explain that. I'm a broadcaster. I like to know what's happening in your home. I want to know what kind of car you're driving. I want to know if you go to church uh, and what you said at church. I want to know what your friends at school are saying. I want to know what the beach is happening. I didn't get that on Sirius XM. I didn't realize that Sirius XM is a very fine uh, broadcast organization, but it is a corporate broadcast. It is not local. It is not heart-to-heart broadcast. It is a corporate type of broadcasting. So I don't know what's going on in somebody's somebody's town. Albeit, you know, we reached the world. We reached all over the place. But it was cold. And I started feeling this. I started getting the, the pangs for local radio again. Well, on the air on Saturday nights, unbeknownst to me, there was a gentleman named John Castamatidis who used to call me with his wife, Margot, almost every Saturday. And this gentleman would ask me to play Elvis or Jerry Lee or a Beatles song or something like that. And I was talking, we got friendly. One day I got a call from somebody. He says, you know who that guy is? I said, no. I said, John, he's the man who just bought WABC radio. I said, what? <laughs> what do you mean somebody bought? A man bought WABC, this mega monster radio station? He bought it. Well, our conversation started changing a little bit. And before you know it, I was signing a contract with him. My contract was just about up at the Sirius. I was talking with him. My uh, my consulare, my uh, my lawyer, Judy Tint, who I love. I'm one of these guys who love their lawyer. I was talking to a Sirius. We just couldn't, I don't know, it didn't make me happy. So I told Judy I wanted out. Meanwhile, I was talking to John. I put Judy and John together with myself, and we made a deal, and uh, well, here we are. I'm back on WABC, full circle again. And you know something, very honestly, without being nasty or anything, I had a good time and I'm serious. It was good. But I am the happiest today, happiest, underlined bold, that I've ever been on radio in my entire life. I feel like I'm home. The audience reacts. I feel the warmth. I feel the breath. I feel the smiles and the tears of that audience. And it just it just happens on this radio station. There's something magic about it. Your your audience that has been with you for so long, did they have they followed you through each one of these different steps? Oh, absolutely. Lots of them. I mean, if you listen to what I have, if you look at my Facebook page, oh yeah, they're there. It happens more every single week. The audience is huge. WABC is happy. The audience builds all the time. Because you know, today, Robert, there's no such thing as a local radio station. There's apps. There's the WABC apps. There's other apps. There's iHeartRadio. There's Alexa. 
I better be careful how I say that. Every time I see Alexa, she says, yes. <laughs> I, you can ask Alexa to play. I got to say this, Logan. You know, I do that on the air. I say, Alexa. And you know, I can picture a thousand Alexas saying, yes, master. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> so, You've got uh, an army of Alexas out there. Google Assistant. You have dozens of apps that garner uh, radio from all over the world. So I facetiously always say, cousins, you can get me. There are dozens and dozens of ways. If you open your refrigerator or use your waffle machine, you're going to hear my voice. I mean, it's all over the place. This digital world is wild. I don't understand it, but it's wild. It's a big change. So, Bruce, you've had so many successes. Tell me, what have been some of your challenges along the way? Getting back in medical school. (laughs) (laughs) I still have that. Challenges? Well, let's see. Um... When CBS FM went off the air, that was a pretty big challenge. That was that was a nightmare for a while, for a few days. Before that, uh, when uh, I think WABC went went off uh, the first time they went off in popular music, that was a big challenge. Uh, when, when things end, you know, in our business, you have to get used to nothing's permanent. You know, you have a contract, and that's reasonably permanent. Nothing's really permanent. So you have to get used to that. I. Uh, I've been very lucky. I've always worked. And if I had a day off, I was very lucky, you know, between jobs. Uh, I've always been a happy guy. So I don't really consider that I've had too many challenges. I'm, I'm a very fortunate man. But if there is any challenges, I think it's when a radio station decides they don't want to do something anymore. And there's no real reason they're not considering the audience. See, to me, the audience is number one. I don't care about the rest of the stuff. If I showed you with the camera uh, what I have in this office now, you know, I'm, I can broadcast from anywhere in the world now with this little tiny box, right, called a Comrax. You plug it in, right, and I can be anywhere. I have microphones. I have all the things. And I have my staff is in the control room. I'm in my home. I'm broadcasting my home right now. But I must admit I miss, I miss my studio. And I guess a challenge which brings me to – Maybe the real answer is this convent thing. That's been a real challenge. You know, keeping up what I want to do, keeping my spirit up, feeling the sadness of this audience, being sequestered, being isolated, knowing that my job is to keep them as happy and away from some of the nightmares of the street. You know, at the beginning of my show, Robert, I guess I know you've heard that show. And I always say something like, cousins, here's the rules. No politics. I don't want any politics on this show. We have enough garbage in our lives. We don't need any more. So if you want to talk politics, you go away. You go to someplace else. There's plenty of places to let your steam out. And I want this to be four hours, this show on WABC, of green, of a playground, of a free space. I want your belly to relax. And that's what I do at the beginning of almost every show. I hold what I call a mini town hall to remind people no politics. I don't want to hear it. And if anybody ever did that, no, only had it once. We cut them off like that. You have been an uplifting person and spirit for everyone for so long. And we're so blessed to have you. It's been a wonderful experience, really, to have you on this show. You know, this is a podcast for dreamers, for people that have a dream, but for whatever reason, haven't pursued their dream yet, or they haven't succeeded. I'm wondering what advice could you, as someone who has been so successful, give to those dreamers? Well, 
this is good because this is something I love to talk about. And I'm almost like a preacher when it comes to this. And I think what you did, follow that dream, those three little words, the whole thing. I don't tell people never, never let anybody, parents, religious leaders, education people, your friends, stop you from doing what you have a dream of doing. It can be the most far-reaching dream. At least get a piece of it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. And as hard as it might seem, if it's worthwhile and you have that in you that you want to do something, jump over every hurdle, go underneath the hurdles, but at least try it. Try at least a bit of it and you'll succeed. I did that. I did that. And I do that all the time. Anytime a hurdle comes my way or something that you know happens, and let's face it, we're human beings, things every day get in the way, right? Something always, and you got to say to yourself, you know, I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to continue what I'm doing. I know what I want. I can see the goal. It's right around the corner there. And I tell people, go after it. Never stop. But stay in school. Take your vaccinations. Wear your masks, right? Do what you have to do. But in your heart, what's something in your heart that tells you, in your spirit, tells you, this is what I'd like to do. And I don't care what it is. doesn't matter how absurd or how benign it could be. It doesn't matter. If this is what would make you happy, never, ever, ever let anybody stop you. Go for it. You hear that, everybody? Words of wisdom from Cousin Brucey Morrow. I want to thank you, Bruce, for being on the show. You've been listening, everyone, to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host, Robert Miller. Remember to get your complimentary dream roadmap, where I lay out my five steps to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap. Again, that's followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap. Please feel free to email me. I answer every email at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And all of my music is available at projectgrandslam.com and the pgsstore.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And now you're going to hear the entire song that we played a bit of at the beginning of this episode. This is my version of the Beatles' I Want to Be Your Man, which again I renamed I Want to Be Your Girl because my band, Project Grand Slam, has a female singer. This song, interestingly, was the only song ever recorded and released by both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Stones, early on in their career, were searching for a single, and their friends John Lennon and Paul McCartney graciously gave them this song. How's that for camaraderie? Thanks for listening. See you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Like no-